y'all. Guess who it is? I mean, I I hope you know who it is. It's me. It's Jay. And you're listening to another episode of Zabuma Foolish. It's actually season two, episode five, but you know, we won't get into logistics. Or maybe it's episode four. Wow, can't keep track. Anyway, moving swiftly on. Today's episode is going to be an interesting one because guess what, y'all? We have the first guest. Yes, that's right. I am super excited. Um, we find uh, well, we I, the proverbial we why I do not know that is drilled in. Anyway, I am super excited because um, the guest today is an indigenous queer academic working and studying here on the traditional ancestral and unceded lands of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam peoples, and or I should say nations actually, and. Um, yeah, I'm just really excited by the interview, but I will get more on that later. Um, and if you're just tuning in and you're like, this, if this is your first episode, one, uh, I don't know what you're doing here. Go back, listen to the earlier content. And two, um, for a bit of context, like the interviews are kind of new. And so uh, you might not know that they're actually being funded by the Patreon. So if um, actually speaking of patrons, I actually I have a I have um, a letter that I'm going to read out um, that someone sent over to um, jaunting.jgmail.com. Thank y'all for sending your stuff there um, because that is the only place I will read it, <laughs> honestly. But yeah, uh, I'm going to read that letter to y'all. So the letter is um, actually, I don't know if they want me to read out their name. So uh, anonymous. Um, and it reads, okay, well, I can't say it's a really a hypothesis, but more of a guess. But there's a jumping spider who lives on my balcony and always watches the cars go by. I don't know if it's reacting to their speed, but I swear every time a car passes, it pops its little head out. So cute. Also, just to let you know, when I was trying to find your email again, your original email with your last name was connected to the mail looking button on your link tree link. Anyways, hope you found this interesting. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I maybe should have read that to myself beforehand. Lol. Um, so yeah, if you are following me from Instagram, I'll go ahead and correct that emails. <laughs> it's actually linked to my like work email. So that's not what I want. Um, yeah, it's already chaotic of enough as it is. But this person's actually gone ahead and attached a little video. So I'll go ahead and add that to the Patreon for the extra content for today's episode. That being said, I honestly, I just, I truly love it when y'all like send in your little animal interactions and your wildlife stories. It just gives me like so much joy. And I've been thinking about doing this thing where, cause I, I, so if you're also just tuning in first episode again, I don't know why go back, but, um, so I'm living in Vancouver and right now it's the migration season. So all of these birds are flocking in and I am just like so excited. You see all these birds that you like literally would never see. And they're just like coming in droves and you're like, Oh, hello little ones. So excited. Um, but yeah, speaking of little ones that moves us into today's animal of the week, which is okay. Maybe I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a hint. Um, um, Sonic underground. Sonic Underground made a vow the mother will be found. Sonic Underground. So, um, 
if you have a second, Google Sonic Underground. It was a TV show I used to watch as a kid. Anyway, uh, people get this animal confused a lot of the time with a hedgehog, which Sonic is a hedgehog. Um, but another character in the Sonic world is Knuckles, who is an echidna. And Knuckles is the topic, or no, echidnas are the topic of today's episode. Yeah, so if you've never heard of echidna before, they're kind of like this cute little looking mole creature thing. They have um, modified hair, so it actually looks like these like sharp quill kind of things on their back. Um, so that's why people get them confused a lot with the hedgehog. But if you look at their hands, you're like, oh, no way you could be a hedgehog with them diggers. Mm-mm. No, no, ma'am. And if they also have really interesting faces, it's kind of like an anteater meets like an elephant. Actually, that's what an anteater is. Actually, what am I talking about? Just that kind of elongated snout. And you're like, what planet are you from? Um, yeah, they're super cute, very adorable. They are only found in Australia, lol. Um, so, I mean, naturally found in Australia. So that's uh, should tell you something about their evolution because Australia has some wild things going on. You know, like evolution, we're going to talk a little bit about that later, but evolution is just so wild because it's literally just like things responding to the environment over time. And then it's like whatever survives and then gets adapted to the local conditions, then all, all of a sudden you see these wild traits, the speciation. You're like, oh, hello. Okay. Body of a otter. Back of a a beaver, feet of a duck, face of a duck, like, you know what I'm saying? Poisonous barbs, ultraviolet fur. That's a platypus. Anyway, I'm not going to get into the ridiculousness that is evolution in Australia. That being said, um, echidnas are part of a very um, small class of mammals called monotremes. And they're special because um, one of the main features is that they can lay eggs. I know, gagatrondra. Not many mammals can, um, that being the echidna and the platypus. Um, granted, I think there actually may be one more, but it's elusive. I don't know. It's like a Pokemon. Um, don't come for me. But yeah, the two I know of for sure are platypuses and echidnas. Um, so yeah, they actually lay their eggs outside of the body. Yeah, that's, I, it's so bizarre. Um, I, I quite like it, to be honest. I think it's kind of cool that within, like, you know, our little family of mammalia, we have this one offshoot that's just like, hey, we want to lay our eggs outside. Childbirth who? Um, live birth what? So I think that's kind of funny, you know. And it's like, it's kind of, it reminds me of the snakes that give live birth. It's kind of like, oh, you ha- you, you were like, oh, no. Uh, vipers do that, by the way, if you were curious. Um, all vipers give live births, which is wild. They don't lay eggs. They're just like, squirm out of me, little ones, which I just, I'm like, when nature does its thing like that, I'm like, okay, you do you. Um, One of the things that I think is really interesting about uh, echidnas also is the fact that they are somewhat um, fire resistant, right? And so we're, I'm going to, I'm going to get into that a little bit later with um, the 626 for today, but yeah, they can, they're adapted to fire. And so um, oftentimes they're actually able to do really well after wildfires. And that's actually because of this unique ability called torpor. Now it's not true hibernation, but many species actually can do this. Like here in British Columbia, we have, um, I mean, bears can also do it, but more typically they go into hibernation. You have, I think some frogs can go into torpor, groundhogs. Anyway, that being said, um, Torpor is like a like a 
a budget cut version of hibernation. So it's not like a true, true hibernation, but your body does extremely cool in temperature. You don't eat. You like fall into this deep sleep. Hashtag sleeping beauty. Very wake me, man, prince. Um, that's I, oh, misogyny just jumped out there. Uh, so rewind that. Uh, just pretend that that wasn't a thing. Actually, no, own it. Um, but that's not that kind of podcast. Anyway, that being said. <laughs> The I think it's really interesting that these like flame or these fire adapted species can come into play because it's not just echidna. It's like to bring it a little bit closer to home. And I mean, it's not an animal. Sorry. I mean, I know this is Zimuma foolish, but if you've never heard of jack pine, um, that is a fire adapted species here in British Columbia. And it's um, it's a pine that essentially it needs fire in order to reproduce because it has something called serotonous cones. These cones actually... Um, have this really hard outer casing, and the only thing that melts it to release the seeds inside is flame. <gasps> Gag, I know. True fire signs out here in the world. And we love it, and we love to see it. And now that we're back on the topic of fire, you'll notice actually fire is going to be this sort of like central vein that runs through today's episode and into the interview. But I'm going to jump to uh, epi- the this week's 626. Yeah, let's do it. So... The paper is titled, uh, well, so yeah, this is, if you're, again, I don't know why, I just think that I, for some reason I have this feeling, I have this vibe that someone listening to this, this is your first episode. And so, um, 626 is a segment where we unpack a scientific paper, but, um, again, go back and listen to the earlier episodes, please. Okay, cool. So, (laughs) speaking of cool, this week's uh, paper is titled Cool Echidna Survive the Fire. And it was written by Julia Nowak, Christine Elizabeth Cooper, and Fritz Geiser back in 2016. Um, Yeah, so not too long ago. It's pretty pretty recent. I like it a lot. So, the abstract is kind of funny. Um, So, it kind of, it's like, it gives you this very big, sweeping, like, dramatic history. Like, fires have occurred throughout history, including those associated with the meteor impact at the Cretaceous, Paleogene, and, like, all, it's just, like, a very drama, drama, ama. Um, and y'all know, I normally really like going through the um, abstract, but I think it's, we can just, like, skip straight to, let's actually just jump into the materials and methods. Again, if you do want to read the abstract, I'll post it with the extra content over on the Patreon. So, um, you can, yeah, just head over to patreon.com. Actually, I'll do that later. Anyway, so... The methods, the study site and prescribed fire. This is section A of the methods. And so um, on April 2015, a prescribed burn was conducted on Dryanda Woodland, southeast of Perth in Western Australia. And it was conducted by the Department of Parks and Wildlife. And so they burned just over 200 hectares. um, And it was confined by like dirt roads and tracks. So the unburned woodland beyond the tracks um, encompassed like the entire sort of like control site so what they were looking at was it if we're looking at scientific experiments there's generally like very no that's not true actually there's a lot of ways to design experiments but one of the standard ways is doing what is called a backy so it is a before and after a control and an impact so you you have data about an area before an event that you're trying to monitor or find data about um, after the event you're, you measure the event itself, so you will monitor the impact, and then you have a control area, so an area that is like very similar to the area that's been impacted, but hasn't been impacted. So they, in this case, right, they're using kind of a similar si- situation. I don't know if they actually have 
they can they can use historical data for the before and the after data they they can do um and the impact is the fire itself and then the control was the was the forest around the fire um outside of their little burn site. So they included a control group in the study design that was monitored concurrently with the fire-affected group and experienced the same ambient weather conditions to exclude, like, for temporal effects. Okay, this is getting a little too wordy. Essentially what they did was they were like, okay, let's look at echidnas in this area that we burn, and we'll look at echidna behavior and what they're doing in this area that we don't burn. And... So they found they had like a population of five echidnas in the control, and then they had another five echidnas in the fire group. So this is, and, and they also had one individual who had a home range that went into both the fire affected area and the unburnt area. So they kind of like excluded his information. Also, why did I went and gender an echidna? Not necessary. We included um, the individual's information, and the paper actually. Um, attaches they have two images of what it looked like during the fire and what it looked like after it's really um like shocking honestly i've never been in a forest fire i want to i feel like the closest thing i've seen is like watching bambi or watching images of forest fires but i feel like that would be really scary to be in an animal so uh to be in as anyone um, let alone an echidna but again i guess we're gonna understand why they're so fireproof and are able to understand but i'll go ahead and post these photos specifically also with the extra content anyway let's get into the procedure so the echidnas were captured by hand and 10 individuals were implanted with temperature data loggers so these are essentially just like little devices that are able to um, monitor the th the thermal differences within um, the echidna cool great so what did they do next? They, oh my goodness. So um, they actually, the devices, oh, I did not know that. Okay, the, <laughs> I should have, I guess, read this beforehand. The devices, I mean, I did, but I didn't, I didn't clock that part. The devices that they used to monitor the temperature, these like little logger things, they had like this um, kind of silk suture that was like attached and kind of dangling out of the abdominal. So they like did they they stitched up the abdominal area after uh, um, inserting the the temperature logger, but they had to have this little tiny like silk thing to be able to like pull it out after. And I was like, oh my gosh, wow. Granted, they did use um, analgesia, so. Uh, yeah, that is kind of like a a way of, um, well, we all know what analgesia is, right? Which is, it's essentially just like a, some method that they used to control pain. So I think in this case, they use like some sort of ointment. Um, it's different from anesthetic. So don't get that, don't get those two confused. That's not, that's not to say that they didn't use anesthesia. They, they did. I just don't want you to get um, analgesia and anesthesia confused. And analgesic is something that will relieve pain and anesthetic is, you know, puts you under, manipulates your body's function. Anyway, I'm not, this is not that type of episode. They also fitted these like, um, I guess, external cradles, um, like for the GPS unit, they fitted these things to the, to the back of the, the echidnas and all the echidnas that they, um, did this with, they were adults, thankfully. Uh, so none of the ones that they captured were like juveniles or infants. So, we are happy that um, only adults participate in the study. But again, I feel like this study would be so scary. Like if I was an echidna, oh, it would be so scary. 
Okay, but let's continue. I guess that's, that's, this is, but it would be scary anyway, because fire happens and echidnas, this is why we're talking about it, is because it's getting to this next part of this paper, right? Where they're trying to study how echidnas are able to survive through fires. And it's because of their ability to go into torpor, right? So this sort of um, ability to manipulate their body temperatures. Um, and so they were able, what the study was able to find, right, was that they had torpor for, multiple days so more than 24 hours so it's like this it's like whoa 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 baby whoa 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 you're an echidna right and fire the fire's coming so you could be in torpor for over 24 hours and you'd be like okay i'm already in a state of deep sleep and my body temperature run low so run me that fire it's fine i'll be good because what you're not impacted negatively by that increased in temperature ambient temperature around you um and so it the gag of chandra is you essentially just get to like sleep through the fire because your body is cold gag is this a real animal or are we in narnia that being said the study did not go like it wasn't just like willy-nilly right you do a controlled burn so they one um, echidna did die it was like resting in a log and th that was a part of the study and then they found like two other individuals that weren't a part of the study that also died in logs but um after like looking at the gps data and after the like studying the burn what they were able to find was that most of the echidnas i think it was around all of them were initially in the um burn area all of the five and then uh, two of them had like slipped away 200 meters outside of the burn so they were like okay chill we're chill and then three of them like went into like th their little sort of burrow areas so they were able to like hide from the fire in that sense now if we want to like just take a second we can just jump down to what some of their findings were and they actually found that like so the individuals that they monitored right the fire influenced individuals that were affected those five in the fire area out of the four that were alive the ones that they were able to then study um those individuals were significantly less active during the day um and spent more time in sort of multi-day torpor than the individuals in the control site or the pre-fire group. So this difference was like apparent despite, right? Despite a higher occurrence of multi-day torpor in the control group before the fire. Gag. Yeah. So essentially the group before the fire, the control group was like, oh, we're sleeping, we're sleeping, we're sleeping. Yeah, it's cool. And then the individuals in the fire who had to go into torpor to survive it, they were like, mm, no, no, we just going to be sleeping way more than those bitches in the control. Nah, -uh -uh. sleep, 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 sleep. We got to up the game, gang. So these four individuals, yeah, they were able to, even though, right, like the control started off with a higher occurrence, right, of torpor, the individuals affected by the fire were like, nah, nah, we going to torpor more. And why is that? Well, this is because, right, evolutionarily, you have to look at what's available after a fire, right what is what are you really going to be doing imagine going to sleep and waking up and being like oh my gosh the landscape is barren i yeah i don't think i would be able to handle that i don't think i would be able to because 
you would wake up and you'd be just in such a state of shock, first off. But then we have to look at what's around. Nothing. Echidnas are eating, you know, they're eating their little bugs. Also, they're like, you know, want to snack on some vegetation. Well, what? What's around? What's around after the fire? Nothing. So, of course, naturally, you're going to go to what you best know, which is you're going to go back to bed. You're going to go back to, you're going to be like, nah, okay, fuck that. I'm going to go back to sleep. And to be honest, as a survival strategy, I'm really happy that that's paid off for them, that they have been able to, over time, as they continue to be exposed to fires naturally that occur across the landscape, because similarly to here um, on the West Coast, it is the same in Australia. Um, So there are a lot of um, sort of fire influenced landscapes and as a result the animals that live there have been able to adapt these sort of strategies to fire over time and i love that the echidnas strategy was to go to sleep and then the ones that were able to sleep long enough were able to survive and pass on their genes and able to continue like and then bam like i just love how this is how evolution works right this sort of synergy this interaction over time between the landscape the environment and then the individuals that live within it ah such such a gag, such a gagatrantra. Okay, so I've been talking enough, and honestly, the rest of the paper is, it's cute, it's fun, it's Google Gaga moment. Not, that, actually, that's not true. That was serving baby, and it's very much um, serving me, like, full-on adult scientists. So, um, reverse 30 seconds. But I think that you should check out the paper. I'll go ahead and share that on the extra content and the Patreon. That being said, <laughs> I'm not gonna go into a... What's the sitch? I'm going to go into what's the sit. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I don't, I'm workshopping this sort of interview segment name. I think in the video, if you see on Patreon, I'm going to be posting the video for this. Um, it's, I think we called it, you can sit with us <laughs> or something like that. You can, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's a work in progress. That being said, I got to um, interview a dear friend of mine who you will be able to listen to shortly. We're going to be talking about fire, fire adapted landscapes, and indigenous use of fire, um, specifically fire management practices. And yeah, I'm just really excited for y'all to have been able to sponsor this. And I know not like all of y'all listeners are patron, so don't worry about that. But it's like even just your support of the podcast has been able to allow me to continue. And this is like... Yeah, I just I'm yeah, I'm just very thankful for this chance and this little opportunity and I'm I'm just so excited. So without uh you know hanging onto your ear drums any longer, let's go into the interview. <laughs> and we're back. This is the interview with today's guest. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. So I'm Ariel Etherton. My ancestral name is Salot Cheam and um I'm a member of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde from Northwestern Oregon, but I'm here starting my master's degree at the University of British Columbia in the Faculty of Forestry, ah, which is very exciting. I love that! Okay, um, if you're watching this right now, if you're like a patron and you're watching this, um, I'm using my phone as the interview mic, so um, excuse the visuals, but I think it actually makes it a little bit more... It's cute. A little bit more dynamic, right? Like, yo and hello... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
that being said, um, let's get into the gigs, the goodies. So we are here creating space for other queer. I don't, again, I'm not a biggest fan of the term BIPOC. I have an article about this, but um, yeah, for queer BIPOC academics up in the space. And I'm very, very thankful that you were able to be my first guest um, for this series. And so I wanted to just start off today's interview by asking what it is that you study or research or are currently involved in when it comes to the work that you do. Yeah, so I think I do a lot of things. <laughs> but currently... Yeah, you do a lot, I, I I do too much. Um, but my current research is around fire ecology and fire's place as a modifier and a caretaker and as a piece of kinship on landscapes. Okay, I love that. So when you say um, fire as a modifier or a caretaker, could you speak a little bit more to that? What do you What do you mean by that? So indigenous peoples to various degrees across North America have used fire and lived with fire in relation to fire as, as a tool on landscapes since time immemorial. So there's lots of different management practices that that looks like. That could mean um, low intensity burning in the spring or fall to uh, cultivate food plants or to clear away forest fuels and maintain grasslands. Uh, it could be use of fire in drawing out prey for hunting. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's, like, lots of different uses for fire on the landscape that indigenous people, you know, like, different indigenous people around North America and also the world have used fire for thousands and thousands of years as a tool. So that's what I study, uh, trying to figure out... Um, what that looks like on landscapes, how to get indigenous people back out on the landscape and burning. Mm, very important. Because um, yeah. it's, you know, illegal to various degrees. Um, That's a gag, right? When we even look back at the history of it, right? Because it wasn't like it was just like, oh, yeah, it's illegal to have a fire. But it was like it was intentionally made illegal because indigenous communities were utilizing it, no? Yeah, exactly. I don't so. know why I said that like a little. <laughs> like, okay, I'm you know, sorry. we were using yeah. it. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, okay, yeah. I'm just having too much fun, y'all, with the interview aspect of this situation. <laughs> and I feel like I'm literally on, like, my little old, like, breakfast television show. But, sorry, I, I will try and have a little bit more um, composure. Back to it. And these are serious issues. Yeah, no, they, they really are, honestly. Um, but, yeah, love that, love that. Um, but, yeah, honestly, can you speak to that a little bit more in terms of, like, the history of how laws have been put against the use of fire? Yeah, so the process of it was, you know, pretty insidious, actually. So first, indigenous people were removed, in many cases, from their traditional territories onto reservations. And then laws were put in place to keep indigenous people on the reservations so that colonizers could come in and settle the rest of the landscape through various forms of violence. And so that meant that people could no longer come out to access their traditional territories to burn. And then there were actual laws put into place as well to prevent that burning. So there was laws um, in British Columbia that, you know, people were executed for conducting traditional burns on their traditional territories uh, throughout even the first parts of the 20th century. So, so you know... So that's recent. That's yes, like, yes, this is recent. Yeah. This is, like, this is recent. This is not, like, long-ago history. And then on top of that, people were, you know, put into residential schools to, to force that loss of knowledge in many cases because mm. knowledge and, and language is how we pass on these management practices to the next generations. So Yeah, and it's not through, I mean, for most um, indigenous communities that I have 
an understanding of, it's not through written um, text more so. It's through that um, spoken language and through that sort of community of knowledge that is held um, and not necessarily yeah, like documented in the colonial ways that um, is really pushed and, and was pushed in, in reservation schools. Yeah. And I think that um, that kind of leads us into the next sort of question that I wanted to um, talk about, which is how that erasure right of knowledge and how that deliberate, right, very targeted um, act by the state, both here in Canada and in the United States of America, to eliminate indigenous people on the land, how that has manifested in some of the realities we're seeing when it comes to the West Coast being burned all along. Um, what, like, could you, uh, yeah, do you want to maybe um, speak a little bit to that? <laughs> <laughs> Big ideas. So, yeah, I mean, this is all by design, of yeah. course, like many things in North America. It's all by design. Um, <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> You know, there was this uh, this shift from indigenous burning practices and even settler burning practices. Like, you know, settler people would come to these landscapes and see indigenous use of burning, and settlers would use it to clear lands too. So there wasn't always this idea of fire being a villain mm. and being excluded from landscapes. But that shifted in the early 20th century with a whole bunch of different policies and also a lot of large-scale wildfires that happened in the western United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and Canada, I suppose. It went up into Canada as well. Yeah. But and when that, we say policies, we mean forestry policies mainly, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So this was, you know, U.S. Forest Service, you know, yeah. Canadian yeah, forest management practices that um, really forced this idea of fire exclusion completely. So there was things like the 10 a.m. policy in the U- U.S., which meant that if a wildfire started at 4 p.m. today, um, your goal was to get it out by 10 a.m. the next day. So very extreme wow. fire exclusion policy. Very, very extremely controlled. Yeah. And then the, the largest public service announcement in U.S. history was Smokey Bear. Um, only you can prevent forest fires. Wow, yep. So, you know, this... Completely uh, vilifying forest fires. Yeah, completely. In that instance, yeah. Yeah, so uh, there was a lot of money and a lot of effort put into these uh, this policy and these like public service announcements to try to vilify a fire both within law and within policy and also in the public eye. Mm. So now we have this this century, essentially, of wildfire exclusion from the landscape, which has led to a buildup of forest fuels. Yes, forest fuel. Okay, yeah. so what for people who uh, maybe aren't in a forestry <laughs> with us, what do you what do you mean by forest fuels? What's that? I just mean the when a tree dies, it falls. There's logs on the ground. There's branches on the ground. Mm. You know, a lot of really woody debris Got it. that has built up in the forests over time. Because a lot of the times, these things would be cleared away by indigenous burning. Got you it. know, we uh, indigenous peoples to various degrees burned to clear out forest fuels and to maintain grasslands. So all of these forests, you know, building up these forest fuels and this woody debris has led to a lot of, you know, there's a lot of tinder in the forests now, a lot of things that, you know, if a lightning strike or a cigarette butt hits and starts a flame, like, that will spread now because there's a lot of forest fuels just built up, which is why, you know... If you have a gender reveal party and it turns into an explosion, you can start one of the largest forest fires that has ever blazed across the West Coast. You know, I'm honestly really disappointed I didn't have a forest fire started to reveal my gender. (laughs) Right? Oh my gosh, I'm out as non-binary. Burn it down. Burn it down. Burn it down. I said... I'm personally offended. Um, I love that. I love that. I think um, that... 
you've touched on some really interesting points here, especially on the fact that, right, it's all by design. And I think that's something that we we say a lot, or I see a lot online, is that um, white supremacy or colonialism isn't uh, intelligent by design or isn't creative. And I'm sorry, but if you ask me, there are some really creative aspects to the ways in which they have manipulated entire generations and communities, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Let alone management practices that ultimately have negatively impacted everyone, right? Um, And I think that I'm I'm just really happy that we were able to share space, but I kind of wanted to like end it on a little bit of a jokey, oaky moment. And um, we're both uh, we're both firesides, and so I'm wondering if you could speak to the vilification of fire through your own personal experience <laughs> as a fireside. Well, as a Leo, I just personally feel very, very victimized by the fact that I cannot be this extra everywhere. I have to, like, fucking pipe it down mm-hmm. when I'm in these academic spaces, usually, That's honestly. That's the tea. That's the tea. We always have to be controlling our internal flames. What is that? What is that? I don't... I'm not appreciative of that. But I on a... Exclusion in the workplace. <laughs> okay, but honestly, also, to be fair, I think that... Um, you did touch on this too, right? This idea that fire is vilified not only in management of the land, but just socially. Um, we have such a negative view of fire. And I think that a lot of that has to do with, in part, like anti-indigeneity and exclusion of indigenous knowledge as valuable knowledge of the lexicon of information that we have available to us as a mm-hmm. society. That being said, do you see any ways in which fire could maybe switch roles, switch positions socially, or even in a management role? I, I really do. So, you know, these, these indigenous practices never never went extinct. Um, we've, to various degrees, different indigenous groups have continued practicing these. And um, we're seeing a big revitalization of these indigenous burning practices. So in my own tribe, the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde, we've started doing more cultural burns for, for food plants and for fuels management and for um, also for endangered species management, just because a lot of these species, uh, especially bulb plants and grassland species that were managed for thousands of years by fire, have become very rare in fire-excluded landscapes. So in many ways, there's a lot of synergies that are happening with the Endangered Species Act and with different um, restoration groups that are allowing indigenous people to come as equal partners to the table Mm. and to uh, conduct restoration burns. So there's a lot of ways that that is happening. Um, Yeah, okay. I love that. I love that. Um, If people wanted to find out more about the work that you're doing or find out like where they could contact you or get in conversation with some of the things that we've talked about today, where could they where could they do that? So you can find me on Instagram and I'm sure Jalen will share my handles. Yes, it will be in the show notes, but um, do it now. Pause an episode ago, put in this username. <laughs> uh, Solo Tiam, I can spell it, but also maybe you could just put it in the notes, please. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay, got it. Yeah, we don't need to spell that out. Um, and if they wanted to contact you maybe for um, more of a collaborative capacity or if they wanted to pay you, do some workshops, or even just ask more about your research, is there maybe an email address they could reach you at? Or There is, arielotherton at UBC. Okay, okay. So I will go ahead and add that to the show notes, but this has been, um, you can sit with us. I'm still actually (laughs) workshopping this segment. (laughs) 
But I really appreciate you taking the time to like sit in space with me today and um, to talk about uh, not only fire management, but um, how it connects to your identity um, and indigeneity more generally. So I, yeah, really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed being here and workshopping this segment with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I hope you Sonic fans out there caught the coin bling sound that brought us back out of the interview and into the little closing um, for today's episode. Again, super thankful for y'all on the Patreon for having been able to, you know, um, help me share the wealth and um, pay some people to come and speak about the work they do. And I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm just really excited for this new chapter of the podcast. That being said, if you want to check out, you know, <laughs> some of the ways to support on Patreon, you can head over there to patreon.com slash jauntingj. That is J-A-U-N-T-I-N-G-J-A-Y. There are a bunch of different tiers to choose from. Um, and yeah, super, like, I guess, direct way of supporting the podcast. But honestly, just like listening, being here um, is support in and of itself. So I'm very thankful for your time. And yeah. I will catch y'all next week for another episode of The Boom of Foolish with me. Oh, also, um, I'll be sure to add Ariel's all of their contact information in the show notes for today. So you can go ahead and connect and reach out. And yeah, if you want to find out more about Indigenous fire management and about fire ecology and some of the work that they're doing, yeah reach out. I highly encourage. Super cool. And it was just really fun to share space with like another fellow non-binary queer academic. Yeah. Um, that being said, this won't always be the case. We're going to be switching it up, different fields, different identities, different people. But yeah, we'll see y'all next week for another episode of Zaboom of Foolish. Okay, bye. <laughs> I think I said that already. Wow. Yeah. 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 Yeah.